Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cover. Thank you, Joseph, for the introduction. And tonight, I'd like to talk about my volunteer empire for working with others. And to do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about my own history. I was a child fanatic when I was nine years old. I saw Flipper. And when I saw Flipper, it wasn't that I thought, oh, I want to train dolphins. I thought, oh, that's what I'm doing. And I worked arduously to prepare for being a trainer of animals, and in particular, a marine mammal trainer. So as a young person growing up, I had horses, had lots of different kinds of pets in my family. And then I went to college at the University of, sorry, University of California at San Diego, which was right next to Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And so I got down there and uh, within the first year, I signed up to learn scuba diving and I started doing a work study program at the lab of Dr. Jerry Coyman, one of the premier probably the premier diving physiologist in the world. And it was a magical experience. I was able to work with seals and sea lions and fur seals and otters and um, other animals. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I worked very hard at it. And when I was ready I started applying for jobs, had really good experience. Scripps is a prestigious place to be from, but you know what? I still could not get a job. I went to SeaWorld. I went to uh, Marine Land of the Pacific and other places, and I could not get a job. I think... I probably, I, I worked as a volunteer in Jerry Coyman's lab for about three years. And we were doing not just regular training, but training for research. It was pretty demanding. And with animals such as the Northern Fur Seal that many people considered not very trainable. So how did I finally get a job? Well, Fortunately, I didn't know the odds against my getting a job. And I found out later they were about half a million to one. I'm glad I didn't make it my business to learn that. What I did instead is I found a directory of all the places that worked with marine mammals throughout the world and decided which of those I might be able to work at. You know, what locations, what places, what 
applications um, they were doing that I'd be willing to participate in. Out of those 300 organizations, I found 45 that I thought I would be able and willing to work at. I don't know what caused me to take this approach, but it was a really important thing that it, it made a big difference. And what it was is that I prepared resume packages and sent them to all 45 places at once. Now remember, I had good credentials already. And out of those 45 resume packets, I only got six return answers. Four of those were, thanks for writing, but we don't have anything. Two were job opportunities. One was part-time, one was full-time. I ended up getting the full-time job. I never forgot how challenging it was to get in the door. And it's challenging to get a job, but it's also challenging just to get the chance to volunteer, to actually get experience that's relevant and makes you valuable. While we're on that subject, just a little side note, the experience that makes you valuable, your, your experience with animals is important and good, but don't discount your other skills because animal trainers are just like everybody else. There's jobs we don't like, and if people that come onto our team can do those jobs, yay. Or maybe we do like the jobs, but we're just not good at it. So if you have skills at editing, at writing, at record keeping, at you know IT stuff, make sure you showcase that along with your animal experience. It can be much more important than you realize. Okay, so... How did I put my memory of the challenges of getting experience into play? Well, when I was 23, I got a job training uh, dolphins. And I loved the work. But I found the place where I was employed was a challenge to work at. And so when I got recommended to a position at the National Zoo, and then I got recruited to that position, I was thrilled. I was 24 years old, and I was hired to be the keeper leader for an animal, unfortunately called Beaver Valley, but it was actually over all the aquatic animals and the bears. So it had the seals, the sea lions, five kinds of bears. Uh, there are six kinds, by the way, and uh, the ones I didn't have were the Himalayan sun bears. And we also had otters, beavers, bush dogs, cheetahs, wolves, white-tailed deer, turkey. I think that's it. So that was my domain. And I was 24 years old. 
And that year I taught a class for FONS, the Zoo Auxiliary Group. And it was for young people. And there were two brilliant young people that were 11 and 12 years old and very passionate about working with animals. And they asked if there was any way that they could get experience at the National Zoo. Well, you know what? They were too young. The National Zoo did not allow volunteers to start before they were the age of 15. So I went to the powers that be at the zoo and I talked to them about this. Why is this age the cutoff? Well, for safety and insurance reasons. Well, the National Zoo is self-insured. Yes, but generally it's considered that people younger than this are unsafe to have. I'd like to do it anyway. Well, Casey, if you do it, it's on your head. If anybody gets injured, it will be your program and your job. But if you're willing to take that situation, you can do it. Well, I was willing to take that situation because I had been a very dedicated, intelligent, responsible young person. And I suspected that these people were as well. But looking back, I will say that 11 years old is probably a little too young. It's uh, when, when people get just a little bit older, then they have a different like approach to things. But nonetheless, I wanted to develop this program and see how it worked. So I wanted to have a really good training system. Well, first of all, while I was negotiating for these young people to be allowed to actually work at the National Zoo, I needed to keep them, you know, give them something that they could do that would be an important contribution and allow them to get started like why just leave them on the side where they could refocus on something else? Instead, I ask them to observe animals and record their observations. What did they see the animals doing? What did they see the people doing? And all of us need to spend lots of time observing our animals. So it was also direct training for them. But when everything got approved and I was able to incorporate these young people into my program, I knew that the training was going to be very important. So what kind of training did they get? Well, it was going to be at least two months before they ever touched an animal. There was a lot that they needed to learn and a lot that I needed to learn about them in particular and them in general as young people doing this job. So they learned about the thing that was really useful to me, 
the first thing we did is find a job that if they did this job for me, it would free my time so that I could do more training with them and for the animals and so on. So we were responsible for our own food preparation at the National Zoo. And so I taught these young people to process fish. That is more demanding and complicated than you might expect because fish is one of the most delicate foods that we feed. It can easily go rancid. When you store it, you have to store it a very particular way. You uh, can't keep it past a certain amount of time. You have to thaw it a certain way so it doesn't go bad. You need to measure it into buckets. And you have to be careful when you're feeding the buckets to the animals. And then after you process the fish and after you feed the fish, you have to scrub everything down from top to bottom. Uh, from those days, I still would love to have solid stainless steel kitchen with a drain in the middle of the floor. Because let me tell you, you want to have a clean kitchen, all stainless steel, long handle scrub brush, and every day you scrub it from top to bottom, hose it down, you're done. You don't have to worry about all the little niggly, piggly stuff. All right, so... It was important to start with something that really relieved a big chunk of my time to turn around and put into this program. I then went to teach specifics about water quality control because that was another huge duty. And there's some risk in water quality control because you're dealing with chemicals that can be dangerous. And chlorine gas, for example, can be fatal. And many people don't know what to do in case of a problem. So I went and got manufacturer data, uh, safety data sheets and information from companies so that I could teach people correctly how to deal with water quality control safely. So what does it involve? Well, first you have to test the water to see what the pH is, what the chlorine levels are, what the chloramine levels are. And this is back when we were all using chlorine to treat the water. Then we also had to apply chlorine. We had to add chlorine to the water. And this was done by automated machines that had to be calibrated and um, they would deliver the chlorine from big vats. So we would have to make sure they had vats, which would come in in big trucks, they would fill the vats. And we had to be very careful about, you know, you couldn't just go from doing chlorine to doing algicide. Because if algicide and chlorine came together, you formed a lot of chlorine gas and a lot of blue smoke. In fact, one of the days I was walking back to the polar bear area from lunch 
And it was like I was watching Sleeping Beauty in real life because there was blue smoke coming out of the top of the building. I knew that wasn't going to be good. And sure enough, when I got to the polar bear exhibit, somebody had mixed algicide with chlorine gas. At that point, I didn't know everything I needed to know. So I called the fire department. That was kind of a stir because what are they going to do? Put the polar bears out with a hose? No, we had to put the chemical reaction out with a hose. And we did that and everything was fine. But it can actually be more of a problem than you might realize. So every time you see, you know, city pools and everything, there's more to it than you think. All right. So I mentioned the problem with the polar bears. The people working with the chemicals had to know how to handle the emergencies before they were responsible. So how do you handle an emergency? You go into the building. When you smell chlorine gas, you go straight to the locker, get the gas mask, walk out of the building, put the gas mask on, walk back in the building. Oh, by the way, on your way out, set off the alarm, right? In case there's anyone else in the building. So you go out, you put your mask on, you go back in. Now you need to do a building sweep. You need to make sure that nobody passed out from chlorine gas on any of the levels. So at the National Zoo, the filter building had three levels. So one day, these two young people that had learned about water quality control from me walked into the building and smelled chlorine grass. So true to training, they grabbed the mask, they went out, and as they went out, they hit the alarm, they fitted their masks on, they went back in to do the building sweep. Well, on the bottom floor, here were two engineers busily working away. And these two young people said, uh, there's a chlorine gas, you need to leave the building. And the engineers, two very nice, middle-aged men said, oh, don't worry about us. We'll be fine, da-da-da-da-da, and sent the young people on their way. Well, the young people were fine, but the two expert employees ended up being treated for chlorine exposure. It was It's really dangerous. And something that a lot of people don't realize is chlorine gas will stick to you. If you're sweaty, it'll stick to you, it'll stick to your hair. You can leave a chlorine gas area and still be being exposed. So you really need to learn your way around. So the, the people learned about the fish, they learned about the water quality control, they learned how to clean the area, they learned how to keep the records. We studied all about the physiology of the animals, the types of animals. We had flashcard games that included all the Latin names of all the animals, that all the marine mammals throughout the world. So Joseph, I gave you a quiz question. Here's your opportunity for the answer. I asked you, did you know who was Eumatopia jabata? And that is a stellar sea lion. Helicorus gripus is a gray seal. Okay, so California, uh, 
Lophus californianus. It's a California sea lion. And so it goes. So these young people learned all of these things and they learned things about the animals. For example, do you know the difference between seals and sea lions? And there's a lot of differences, but basically seals are more pelagic. They're more water developed, deep water developed. And sea lions are more intercostal. They don't dive as deep. They don't, they're not as conservative with their heat. They're more acrobatic. They're faster, so on and so forth. So you're going to see California sea lions all along the shore of the West Coast. And maybe not so much in the middle of the ocean where you're more likely to see seals further out. Okay, so we did all this training. And meanwhile, I was also developing my programs. I had two levels of program. One was for keepers and one was for docents. And there were so many people that loved the marine mammals. And they came to see them all the time and they learned a lot about them and it was really wonderful to incorporate them into what we were doing to add them to the programs where they got to learn directly about the animals they got to observe they got to answer questions for people and explain to them what we were doing it was fantastic now, this zoo has a wonderful auxiliary group where they did then called FONS, but FONS had their own priorities for how they assigned volunteers and they you know, had their own rules and everything. And I wanted more people that were invested in these animals and reaching out to other people. So I ended up with about 120 docent volunteers. And these people also did things for us like pregnancy watches. They would come to the zoo and just observe when a female was getting near to the time to deliver their pups or other, you know, cubs, whatever. And of course, they helped during our demonstration. So we were one of the areas in the zoo that actually had training demonstrations. And having worked as a dolphin trainer, where I had to do up to 14 shows a day, I became convinced that I did not want a hard scripted performance kind of demonstration. I didn't want to ask the animal to do the same thing again and again and again. So I developed a training demonstration. So whatever it was we were training, we would talk about that and the goals and where we were. And then we would go ahead and actually work with the animals to go get to the next steps. So when people came on any day, you know, if they came frequently, they would see the whole thing develop. 
But on any day, they were very likely to see something different. This paid off big time. Like if your goal at a zoo is to connect as many people as possible, as fundamentally as closely as possible with the animals, to give them a sense that these are their animals, that they are supporting and studying and that they know. Getting the people back to the zoo frequently is very important. And we had many, many people that came nearly every day. People that if I didn't see them for a while, I would get worried. I remember getting a huge shipment of various toys that were very well selected from a person that had been in the military and visiting the National Zoo and moved to a new area. And she had found watching the seals and sea lions so wonderful, beneficial, and important that when she left the area, she wanted to leave them with a thank you gift. And the toys were all really good. You know, they were all things that we could use. And um, I believe they included a set of three little flat discs. They were kind of rings. And you will be able to see video of me working at the National Zoo with young people and um, using those rings. When will you be able to see it? When I post that particular piece of video. It takes a little bit of editing, so that's what's taking me time. Anyway, so this is the importance that these animals had to the visitors. So how many keeper volunteers did I have? Well, over the course of the first five years that I was there, I had at least 40 keeper volunteers. These people donated over 15,000 work hours to the National Zoo. And that is uh, seven and a half work years. Seven and a half years of free labor. And these people were so good and they were so valuable that when I went on vacation, the zoo would call in the volunteers as young as they were. You know, like I said, some of these people at this time, they would have been 12, 13, 14, 15 in there. And these people could be overseen by the keepers but run the entire area. They knew all the animals. By this time, they were literally training the animals and uh, they were capable of presenting the demonstrations. Now, that was a long road because there's a lot to learn. I, I estimated it took two full years for someone to master animal training as we understood it up to that point. And as you may know, um, public speaking is not the easiest thing for many people to learn. 
But we developed all these people and they all became good public speakers and good presenters with one notable exception. I won't say who that was, but there was only one person out of the entire group that uh, just didn't thrive as a public speaker. But how did all these other people learn? We put them out in front of the pools to work at weeding the beds. And as they were weeding the beds, they would hear these people spontaneously ask questions, questions that they knew the answers to. And as I would go by, if I heard a question also, I would say something like, well, this person knows the answer to that. And I'd invite the person to explain it to them. And the next thing you know, the the young people, and, and not all our volunteers were young either. A lot of them were professionals that were highly uh, skilled in other fields and were generous to donate time to the National Zoo. But anyway, these volunteers would learn that these people were hungry for information, that they weren't sitting there in judgment of the people that were presenting the training demonstrations, but rather they were eager to learn what was to be learned and other things that maybe we didn't talk about in the presentation. So once the young people and other uh, volunteers understood that public speaking is just another role of service, it's what we do to communicate you know, what these people want to know and what the animals need them to know. And it's not about, oh, I'm so good. I'm a, I'm a public figure. And as a matter of fact, in my experience, I found that the audience will forgive you anything except for arrogance. Like I could go in front of an audience and lose my way when I was talking and just go, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. Does anybody remember what I just said? And somebody would call it out. Yeah, they would help. And they would help like, uh, did you see there's a snake in the pool? No, thank you. Did you see there's, you know, somebody's glasses in the pool? This sea lion is acting different. Or how about this one? There's another podcast on this already. Um, did you know your otters are out? What? So it was a mission that we all shared together. You know, the me, the other keepers, the keeper volunteers, the docent staff, and all the visitors. We really had a combined mission. And this uh, came out one of the more extreme ways is when we were teaching the gray seals to come out into the public area. Because what if I ever had to move the gray seals? I If I ever had to move them for one reason or another, I didn't want them to be terrified of being outside. And so we went through a whole process of teaching them about the visitors. And the visitors were so helpful. So... If you are trying to get your visitors to sing for you, here's a tip 
don't waste your time asking a bunch of adults to sing for seals and sea lions. Instead, ask the children, would you please help me by singing row, row your boat to this animal? That's a predictable, gentle song that allows the animals to get used to hearing voices of people and in particular, young people. Well, you know what happens is the child is willing, but they're not confident. And so they kind of fluster and they look from side to side. And the parents that want the best for their children dive in and say, I'll help you. So now you have the parents and the children all singing, row, row, row your boat. So we went from that and through other songs, like when the saints come marching in and then walk like an Egyptian, et cetera, et cetera. And then we went to movement. So when we went to movement, we would add movement going back to an easy song to row, row, row your boat. So we would say, okay, can you pretend like you're rowing your boat and move your arms like so in a gentle, slow, smooth, predictable way. So everybody did that as they're also singing. And then we would go, you know, get more and more extreme with the movement. Well, one day the director of the national zoo, Dr. Reed was driving by in a little scooter and he saw hundreds of people gathered in front of me. Well, who was in front of me first was a gray seal. And then directly behind the gray seal were a bunch of keeper volunteers with moving boards to separate the people from the animals. And then behind them were hundreds and hundreds of people singing, row, row, row your boat as they gently moved their arms. And I saw Dr. Reed get out of his vehicle. I saw him climb into the back deck. I saw him arch his hand over his eyes so he could see into the sunlight. I saw him shake his head and drive away. And I had a little foreboding, right? I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but I couldn't just stop in the middle of things and ask if I could help or whatever. I had to continue what I was doing. Later that day, I got a phone call from our curator, Dr. Boness, and he said, Dr. Reed called are you doing calisthenics? I don't know if everybody knows what calisthenics are, but they were an exercise form, kind of like Zumba, right? But different. Anyway, no, I wasn't doing calisthenics. I was doing gray seal training. And with the help of these people, we got it so that the gray seals were able to come out into the public area. So that allowed all kinds of great enrichment. It was enrichment for the humans and it was enrichment for the gray seals. One of the things the gray seals love to do is come outside, sit on one of their seats and you know, the seats would elevate them so they could see better and look back into their exhibit to see their exhibit and the other gray seals as the visitors were seeing them. And I remember when we went to the wolf exhibit, boy, were they curious about that. And we'd take them all the way up as far as the otters. 
And it was wonderful. And every place we went, you know, safety first, we were surrounded by volunteers with boards and these people were carefully trained and we covered everything. We even had the zoo police come in and ride circles around gray seals with their scooters while they fired off cat pips, cat pistols. And the point of that was that you never know what you're going to encounter. So I always try to train beyond need. If I think the situation could get to be this complicated, I would try to train to a significantly more complicated level. And you know what? That's a really good idea because I did have people jump in with the sea lions, for example, swim onto the beach and pose for pictures on the beach. Thank God they didn't do it with the uh, polar bears. So what ended up happening with our program? Well, as I said, just in the first five years I was there, these people donated over 15,000 hours. I lost track. I got really busy after that. And um, so I don't know what the total contribution was. They made so many things possible for me. They improved the quality of the lives of the animals. They improved the quality of the visits, but it also prepared these people for their careers with animals. One person became a renowned veterinarian. Uh, one person became a, uh, she has her own training program and she's become quite well known in her own right. Another person became one of the top trainers at SeaWorld um, being an orca trainer. And who knows what else? I don't know what happened with everyone. In fact, if you're out there and you were one of these people, please make contact. I would love to be in contact with you. And I'd love to know how you applied your experiences. I mean, even if it was just a great experience, that's good enough. But what I intended to do was arm as many people as possible with high level volunteer experience so that they could then make a further contribution to exotic animals and domestic animals, however else they wanted to do it. So that is the story of my empire. How, how did I get um, that idea of my volunteer empire? Well, one curator accused me of just trying to build a personal empire. And I was, I was definitely building an empire. I wasn't trying to do it. I did it. We had really a, a huge thing going on there, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't my personal empire. It was an empire for the animals and the people at the National Zoo. Hey, thank you so much for spending time with me. It's so important to me. It, I appreciate it so much when you share this podcast with others, when you like it, when you make comments. And I'm trying to learn how to comment back. Uh, for example, 
we have a comment that I still have to answer. And the reason I haven't answered it yet is I have to get on the app. I'm trying to learn all this technology stuff and it changes constantly. And I don't have my podcast app yet. So as soon as I do, I'll answer the rest of my uh, comments. So thank you for making them. I've read them. They're valuable to me. And I can't wait to answer you working on that. Take care, everybody, and see you soon. Thank you. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.